Bibles and turn with me to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and uh, I felt impressed as we head into uh, what we call here at Bible Baptist Church our season of revival, and this year uh, our theme being uh, Lord teach us to pray, that we just uh, take this Sunday uh, to prepare our hearts uh, for this time frame. Uh, These next several weeks, we'll have some special guest preachers in, and uh, they'll be preaching on things concerning uh, the conversion of the soul, and and uh, preach on things concerning revival and repentance and renewal in our hearts and lives, and uh, leading right into Community Day, and then our revival meeting uh, the third week of February. And so in light of that, I wanted us to prepare our hearts as a church family uh, concerning this thing of revival and prayer for revival. In your bulletin uh, today, you also have received our prayer uh, for revival uh, revival Prayer and Fasting Guide. And over the next several weeks, we invite you to join us in corporate uh, prayer and fasting. And the first week, we'll, uh, if you're joining us, which you can uh, modify this as the Lord leads you. We believe in individual soul liberty here at Bible Baptist Church. This is between you and the Lord as to whether or not you participate to begin with, uh, and then how you participate. Uh, but you could choose one of these things and fast from that for the entire month if you choose to. You could choose a meal that you fast from. Uh, you could choose a particular thing that you eliminate for a whole month. Um, or you could do each of these with us. And this is an opportunity for us to, uh, to uh, as a community of believers, participate in prayer and fasting. Uh, but the first week we'll do a dessert fast and that begins today. Uh, and uh, what you'll find happens as you do this, I'll, pre- I'll speak a little more tonight on prayer and fasting and uh, give you a biblical explanation as to why you add fasting to your prayer life and, uh, and show you, uh, maybe even share some practical tips with you about how to fast. Um, but for now, I just want to call your attention to the first week we'll do a dessert fast. And what you'll find is that as you abstain from any one of these particular things for a uh, period of time, that it will call your heart and attention more toward the idea of prayer and, uh, and the uh, temperance from the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, as you exercise control in a particular area, uh, then you leave room for the Holy Spirit of God uh, to work in other areas of your life. And so the dessert fast. And then the next week would be like a coffee and soda fast, really a caffeine fast. And uh, you'll only have a headache the second day. Um, and uh, that's the oxygen returning to your brain uh, from that. And then uh, a bread fast uh, the other week and then a media fast. And, and, uh, and that leads us right up to our community day on February 22nd. And I'll give you some more details about community day when we get to the announcement portion of the service. But I wanted to share with you a little bit about this thing regarding prayer and fasting ahead of our message this morning. I, I want you to think about as we think of this thing of prayer and fasting for revival, uh, I want you to consider for a moment the great need for revival in our country. Nearly a decade ago, uh, Ken Ham and the people of Answers in Genesis conducted numerous surveys and produced a book that was called Already Gone. And the book Already Gone, he wrote concerning the disappearance, if you will, of especially young adults, 20-somethings, from our churches. Uh, And they were trying to 
conduct surveys in order to determine why it is that these age gaps exist, especially in our conservative churches. Uh, he wrote first concerning England. In England, he wrote, uh, according to a recent English church census, regular churchgoers of all denominations amount to 6.3% of the total population. The proportion of churches per individuals is now one church to every 1,340 people. But the size of the average Sunday congregation, however, is 84. Between 1998 and 2005, there was an overall decline in regular church attendance of 15%, and the trend continues. 40% uh, of regular churchgoers who attend evangelical churches, but even these groups are seeing their numbers rapidly decline. All in all, only 2.5% of the population is attending Bible-based churches. One United Kingdom news source in 2003 stated uh, that Holy Week has begun with an uh, expert prediction that the Christian uh, church in this country will be dead and buried within 40 years. It will vanish from the mainstream of British life with only 0.5% of the population attending Sunday services of any denomination, according to the country's leading church analyst. Only 7.5% of the population uh, went to church on Sundays, and that in the past 10 years, billed by the churches as the decade of evangelism, uh, church attendance dropped by an alarming 22%. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? Uh, well, first of all, it was nearly a decade ago, and we're talking about England. And when we think about Europe, Europe was once the land of great revivals, was once the land of the Great Reformation, and many revivals that came out of England and Europe, and now that continent is considered to be a post-Christian continent. But here we are in the United States. What does that mean to us? Well, they continued. Irrefutable statistics are forcing us to face the truth. Uh, respected pollster George Barna was one of the first to put numbers to the epidemic. And this was before, this was before the pandemic that we uh, recently have had in the same time frame, nearly a decade ago. He said, based on interviews with 22,000 adults and over 2,000 teenagers in 25 separate surveys, Barna unquestionably quantified the seriousness of this situation. Six out of 10 20-somethings who were involved in church during their teen years are already gone. Despite strong levels of spiritual activity during the teen years, most 20-somethings disengage from active participation in the Christian faith during their young adult years and often beyond that. Consider these findings, that nearly 50% of teens in the United States regularly attend church-related services or activities, and then more than three-quarters talk about their faith with their friends. Three out of five teens attend at least one youth group meeting at a church during a typical three-month period. One-third of teenagers participate in Christian clubs at school, that's all well and good. But do these numbers stand the test of time? Is the involvement of church children and teens continuing into their young adulthood? Unfortunately not, not even close. The Barna research is showing that religious activity in the teen years does not translate into spiritual commitment as individuals move into their 20s and 30s. In our own research, that is Answers in Genesis, you are about to discover will illuminate those reasons that this occurs. And so they go on to describe the decline of 20-somethings within the church. While we realize that all of that was recorded nearly a decade ago, 
what we've seen take place in the last three years in particular is not a change in the trends, but an acceleration of the trends. Everything that had already been happening in our country for the last couple of decades expanded exponentially with the pandemic. Recent uh, article by Christian Post said that church attendance is still short of pre-pandemic levels. And although most have reopened, the survey shows that nearly three years after COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns were forced uh, enforced churches closing across the United States and shutting their doors, many attendees have not yet returned. Even the vast majority of churches uh, have not, res- uh, even though the vast majority of churches have resumed in-person services. Lifeway research. Uh, It took a phone survey that 1,000 Protestant pastors conducted from September 6th through September 3rd, uh, 30th of 2022, so that was just a few months ago, using a random sample from a list of all Protestant churches. Each interview was conducted with the senior pastor, ministers, or priests of a particular church, and the responses were weighed by region and church size, etc. And uh, basically, as this article goes on, what they find is that the vast majority of churches are only at about 85% of their pre-pandemic levels. A very, very small percentage of churches uh, grew during the last several years. Now, we thank God that we've seen that in our church, but we did experience some stagnation uh, over the last couple of years, whereas at our church over the last several years, I've been the pastor here, every quarter we've had new people added to the church. That happened very infrequently over the last uh, couple of years. What we're finding is that those trends are accelerating. And one article by Christianity Today demonstrated that that trend has exponentially increased, especially among the 20-somethings who were a part of our churches even just a few years ago. What we're seeing today is a great falling away from faithfulness to church and to the Lord's house in this day. Now, I realize that, um, that while... Uh, church attendance is not necessarily everything that there is to having a relationship with God. It definitely is a reflection of the value and priority that God's people have placed upon uh, church attendance in the last several years. And as that particular study that I read to you a moment ago continued, one of the things that it pointed out is that although there is an absence, an increasing absence of 20-somethings in churches, that the older generation have decreased their faithfulness over the last several years. And that that has impacted attendance. And you can't tell me that's not true because some of the people who need to hear this are not here today. And they used to be, they used to be here uh, every Sunday. But after the pandemic, church was shut down, habits changed, priorities shifted, and that's the real problem. And now the result is that many of those people who were one time consistently faithful to the house of God two or three years ago because of sickness in the land now watch services online, rarely attend, unfaithful in their giving. It's shown a shift of priorities among people. And then let's talk about the pulpit. In an article by News Nation, Losing Their Faith, the, power, the, the great pastor resignation said this, a recent study found that pastors nationwide are struggling with burnout and quitting just like much of the U.S. workforce. Barna, a Christian research organization, reported that stress, isolation, and political divisions are among some of the issues facing pastors' desire to quit. As of March 
2022, 42% of pastors considered quitting, according to the data. Why are they quitting? Stress of the job, loneliness and isolation, political division, impact on family, and concern about the future of the church. And it goes on to explain a little bit more about the trends that we've seen taking place since uh, the 70s, 80s, and 90s of additional expectations and responsibilities placed on the pastorate from cultural trends rather from the Word of God, and these having an impact in this day in which we live. Why is all of that significant? Because I think it's telling of something else. We've talked about a great pandemic across our world and the impact that, uh, that a sickness had on, uh, on shutting down supply chains and, and on uh, people resigning from their works and, and great inflation taking place in, in an immediate period of time. Political division being exponentially uh, taking place across our land. It would not be hard for us to, uh, to point to a great argumentation and political division uh, in this day and hour in which we live. But I believe that all of those are, in, are, uh, are found in their root in the fact that God's people have shifted their priorities. And what I want to talk to you today is about this though, that while all of that seems sad all around us, and while we see absolute terrible things taking place in our nation, the answer is not in the White House, in the courthouse, or in the state house. The answer is in God's house and in your house. And I want you to see with me 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And uh, as you turn there, uh, what you'll find in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that we have a recipe for revival. A recipe for revival. And I want you to look closely at these verses here as we read them together, that uh, God gives a plan, and I want you to know that it's directed toward you and toward me. It says this, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send, notice this, pestilence among my people, What's a pestilence? What's well, a disease? An epidemic? A pandemic? If, if God should send drought, if I shut up heaven, there should be no rain. If God should command the locusts to devour the land, if, if God should send a pestilence among his people, then here's how his people ought to recognize that they ought to respond. Then he says this, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now I've talked a lot about the statistics that are grave indeed of declining church attendance across our nation. And you and I could easily point to the political divisions and all of the crises that are facing us today and the lack of morality that is taking place in our land we may want to point our fingers at Congress, and we may want to point our fingers at Hollywood, and we may want to point our fingers at the liberal agenda and uh, at alternative lifestyle agendas and at the gender crisis that's taking place in our land. But when God says that when we see these things taking place, that his finger is pointed at you and at me, I want you to see that God is talking about a specific people here. If my people which are called by my name, 
shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. We would say, all to God that Congress would get on their face before God. Why would you expect an unregenerate people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior to get on their face before God and ask him to do anything? And why on earth would he listen to them uh, when they are divided from him according to their sins? Oh, that Hollywood would get right with God. Sometimes I'll see uh, Christian people get real excited about a particular individual in Hollywood who proclaims that they have been converted and they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that's a wonderful thing if they do. But you and I don't need the celebrity endorsement of Christ. Why would you expect the lost people of Hollywood who have faces like angels but morals like alley cats to seek the Lord and to pray, and for that to make any difference in our land. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. The truth is that what you and I need to do is that we need to realize that judgment first begins at the house of God. And the problem in our land is not the problem with our land. The problem in our land is a problem right here in churches like this one where people like you and like me have shifted our priorities and God is peripheral rather than preeminent. If my people, which are called by my name, Vince Havner said this, that many a so-called revival is only a drive for church members, which adds to more unsaved sinners, starch and iron, but never washed to a fellowship where even true believers have not been aroused for years. When we talk about having a season of revival at Bible Baptist Church, and we talk about holding a revival meeting, the fact of the matter is that there must be true revival, which takes place in the hearts of God's people. And the problems that we see in our land today are only symptoms of the fact that the churches have turned their faces away from God and toward peripheral things like entertainment and being a community center of some kind and uh, setting up lots of activities. But the worship of God and the prayer toward God and the seeking of God are all secondary and tertiary activities at the average local church. The problem is if my people, which are called by my name, not if Hollywood, not if the White House, not if Congress, not if the courthouse, it would be a wonderful thing if those people would be converted and be saved. But it's going to start with you and me realizing that the problem is with us. It begins with you. It begins with me. David understood his own, uh, his own plight before God as he committed sin. When he came and confessed his sin to the Lord, he said in Psalm uh, 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. Psalm 51, verse number 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Our problem is that it's easy for us to condemn all of the sins that are outside of this building and outside of our house because they sin differently than we do. But God's not asking you to point your finger at them. He's saying that you need to, that judgment begins at the house of God. That you and I ought to judge ourselves. That we ought to search our own hearts. That we ought to seek cleansing before, our, uh, before God. Gypsy Smith famously said, when asked, how can you experience revival? How will we experience revival today? 
the great preacher Gypsy Smith said, you just go into a room all by yourself and you take a chalk and you draw a circle in the middle of that floor and then you get on your knees in the middle of that circle and you pray to God fervently and say, God, please revive everything in this circle. Then and only then can we have revival. We think that it's everybody else's job, but something that I've learned in the in roles of administration is that when it's everybody's job, then it's nobody's job. And so you have to assign the job to somebody. And here's what God's saying. I'm assigning the job to you. You wanna see a difference in your land? You wanna see these young people coming up uh, know what, that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl? You wanna see these people coming up to know the 10 commandments and to know the law of God? To know that they were created by God? You wanna see these people coming up to know the word of God? Here's the answer. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. My people. There's a specific people that are spoken of in this verse. It's not everybody else. It's you. It's me. It begins with you. But then I want you to see this. There's a submissive process. I told you that I want you to see that there's a recipe for revival this morning. God tells you exactly step by step what it is that he wants you to do. How many of you appreciate a good how-to video on YouTube? You know, uh, you know so, something's broken at home. You don't know how to repair it. But what you do is you look it up online and all of a sudden you watch somebody go step by step. Uh, for me, I always have to watch a YouTube video to try to remember how to reset the check engine light or for the, uh, the oil maintenance light on my uh, on our Toyota Sienna. You have to, you know, turn it a couple of clicks and press the button uh, until it turns to trip A and then turn it off and then press the button again and hold it until you turn it back on and then it'll, it works every single time, but I can never remember how to do it. But you know what? God made a note for us right here. And this is God's plan that every single time, if you will do this, you can experience a personal revival in your life. And I believe that if there were one man, one woman at Bible Baptist Church who absolutely got serious, absolutely got on fire for God, it would transform this church. And if this church got serious and absolutely on fire for God, it would transform maybe the other churches around us. And if those churches got serious and on fire for God, there are enough churches across St. Lucie County that, oh my goodness, you wouldn't be able to hold a revival. You'd have to turn it loose. You'd have to turn it loose. And here is the formula that God gives to us today. The first one is this, pray, pray. This particular thing, though often talked about, is very little practiced. Perhaps the activity of prayer seems too simplistic for us. Too simplistic. It's not that prayer has been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. If you think that prayer is simple, then why don't you do more of it? Prayer is work. It's real work. But I want you to know that when you and I work, then we get what we can do. And that might be something, although Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. But when we pray, we get what God can do, and that is everything. Everything.
And when we look at the great problems that are mounting around us, I'm telling you, you can sit and watch Fox News all day long and you're just going to be upset about all the things that are taking place around you and it's going to rise up contention in your own heart. You can sit and watch CNN all day long and you might even get angrier than that, MSNBC and all the rest. And the only thing that they can do is inform you about the problems and the only thing you'll do sitting there in your living room is wring your hands and worry about the problems. And you can be really good at diagnosing what's wrong with all of it. And you can listen to all the statistics and you can hear all the numbers and you can get really sad in your heart. And then you look at yourself and you say, but what can I do about it? I'm glad you asked. Because according to Jesus, he said, without me, you can do nothing. So the answer is exactly what you're thinking. What can you do about it? Nothing. But prayer is that activity that you and I participate in whereby we take the things that we cannot do and we place them firmly into the hands of the God who can do it all. You will be able to do nothing until you've prayed, but you will be able to do something after you've prayed. You see, when we work, we get what man can do, but when we pray, we get what God can do. There is a place of power, someone wrote. There is a place where thou canst touch the eyes of the blinded men to instance of perfect sight. There is a place where you can say, arise to dying captives bound in chains of might. There is a place where you can reach the store of hoarded gold and free it for the Lord. There is a place upon some distant shore where you can send the worker of the word There is a place God's resistless power, responsiveness moves in thine instant plea. There is a place, a simple trusting place where God himself descends and fights for thee. Where is that blessed place thou dost ask? Oh, where? Oh, soul, it is the secret place of prayer. Do you pray? Have you sought the Lord about the problems in our land? Have you sought the Lord about the problems in your own heart? the problems in your own family, the problems in your own church, the problems in your own community? Do you pray? I wonder what kind of a difference it would make if we took seriously the commandment that the Lord gave to us that we pray for those who are in authority that we may live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. It's one thing to criticize the man in the White House. It's another thing to pray for him. It's one thing to criticize the people on Capitol Hill. It's another thing to pray for them individually, by name specifically. It's one thing to to criticize uh, the decisions that are being made on the Supreme Court, but it's another thing to pray. It's It's one thing to sit in your living room and watch the endless news cycle try to keep you revved up in a state of anxiety, confusion, and stress. It's another thing to pray about those things that you see in here. You might do well to just turn it off and talk to God. Do you pray? You say, what difference could that make? Well, the Bible gives us a promise. Gives us a promise. And it says this in James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You say, well, how much can the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, what is an effectual fervent prayer? Well, effectual fervent for us is two words, but it took two words to describe one word that was used there in the original languages. The word is energeo. Uh, it's the root word from which we get the word energy. 
You ever prayed an energetic prayer? Put a little energy into your prayer? Too often, our prayers are lazy prayers that really don't avail too much. But the effective, active, efficient, energetic prayer of a righteous man, the word availeth much means accomplishes much. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And you say, well, what could it possibly accomplish? Well, uh, that particular passage of Scripture gives you an illustration. It said, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Why? He saw the sins of the nation of Israel, and he knew this particular verse in Second Chronicles chapter 2, that if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. But he also knew that the prerequisite to that, what God was going to do on the other side of it was that he might shut up heaven so that his people might pray and seek him. He would take the blessings away so that they might pray and seek him. And so Elias prayed that it would not rain. And you know what happened? It did not rain. And he was a man subject to like passions as you are. You say, well, Elias was a great, Elijah was a great giant of the faith. Well, in a certain way he was, but in another way, he was just an ordinary man. And those narratives of the Old Testament, the Bible tells us, were given to us for an ensample or an example that you and I should learn from them. He prayed that it might not rain. And then it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again that heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. He prayed that it wouldn't rain and God answered from heaven and did not send rain and there was a drought in Israel. But when the people, when God got the people's attention, then Elijah prayed again that it would rain and it did rain. God listened to one man in the nation of Israel through prayer. You don't have to be powerful, you don't have to be mighty, but you can be a man or a woman of prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes or availeth much. I heard the story years ago, though, about Adrian Rogers. Uh, some of you know that, uh, that he's one of my favorites. You might have heard me quote him a time or two. <laughs> but he told the story about how that he was pastoring, maybe even here in Fort Pierce at the time, and that he was called over to the house of this family, and uh, there was an urgent prayer need. And he, called, he went in to visit, and this the, the woman of the house was a godly older lady and her son lived with her. And uh, her son was uh, not uh, faithful in his church attendance and didn't have much interest in the Lord. And, and so Brother Rogers was visiting with them and, and uh, Pastor Rogers was asked to pray about this particular situation. So he bowed his head and he started praying. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd intervene and so on. And he said, this young man who really didn't serve God and really didn't go to church, he said, pray, preacher, you ain't praying. He said, well, I thought, well, I'd lift up my voice just a little bit more. So he started praying a little bit louder. And he said, pray, preacher, you ain't praying. He said, he lifted up his voice a little bit more, prayed a little faster this time. And he said, pray, preacher, you ain't praying. He said, this was so distracting. It was hard for me. I couldn't get my bearings. And I was just trying to put all the energy into it. And he said, pray, preacher, you ain't praying. He said, finally, in frustration, I ended my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. But by the time I looked up, I noticed that this little lady had disappeared. 
She'd gone away. And while we were there in that kitchen and he was telling me that I needed to pray, uh, I was saying a bunch of words and going through the exercise of prayer and this woman had disappeared and we started to look around the house for her. He said, I walked down the hallway and I heard a voice and I continued to follow that voice through the house and I noticed that she was in a bedroom and he said I could hear her. I pushed open the door and I witnessed that woman's prayer life as she ascended the stairs to heaven. As she walked down the streets of gold, pushed open the pearly gates. I listened to her pray as she walked into the very throne room of God. And I listened to her pray with great fervency and energy in her prayer that the God of all heaven leaned down and heard that little widow lady's prayer. And he said, then I understood why that young man who, although he did not serve God, knew that I was not praying because he found he had heard his mama pray, a woman who really knew how to get the attention of God. We are invited to come boldly before the throne of grace. But the problem is we don't come at all. Pray, Christian. You ain't praying. D.O. Moody said this, if you're not praying, you're just playing. I think there are a lot of people who are play acting, a lot of people who pretend, and we talk a lot about prayer. Somebody comes to us with a particular need and we tell them, oh, I'll pray for you. You're a hypocrite because you're not gonna do it. You're, if you and I would kneel in secret, then our Father which seeth in secret would reward us openly. Oh, that my people would pray. And then he said this, you need to prioritize. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and seek my face. I've talked a little bit over the last several weeks about what it is to seek the face of the Lord. I remember several uh, months ago now, maybe a couple of years, uh, time flies by so fast. Vivian has always had a big personality. I think all of you have been introduced to that at this point. And uh, if you keep coming here any length of time, then you'll know. But she was, uh, she would go around and she said, I'm Vivian Sophia and I'm three years old. And uh, when she was three years old, uh, for me, after a day of preaching and interacting with all of you, I absolutely love you. But at the end of the day, I'm pretty tired. And uh, when Jesus uh, was walking through the midst of the multitude and the woman took of the hem of his garment, the Bible says that virtue went out of him and he said, who touched me? Uh, that word virtue is the same word from which we get energy. And when you're ministering people, there's a little energy that leaves you every time that there's a touch. And, uh, and so by the end of the day, there've been a lot of touches. And uh, I get a little tired. Um, but Vivian, she loves being around you all so much that she gets charged up. I mean, she's alone most of the week. We homeschool her right now. And she's an extrovert. And she gets all her energy from being around other people. And uh, by the time we get home, she's doing jumping jacks. And she's doing flips. And she's literally jumping and all kinds of things. But she wants to just talk, 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 talk when we get home at the end of the day. I've already listened to people talk, 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 you know. Uh, and, uh, and so we were getting into the car. And we were going to go drive somewhere else and uh, have dinner after the evening service. And she was telling me stuff. And I was saying, yeah, uh-huh, 
okay, yeah, okay. And I'm just putting her in her car seat and just buckling up. And she said, no, daddy. You don't say uh-huh to me. You listen to me. <laughs> well, I mean, what do you say to that? You know, her mama taught her that. <laughs> uh, she, uh, but uh, she, but she had a point that she knew that I was distracted by all kinds of other thoughts, all kinds of other things, thinking about my own tiredness, thinking about my own hunger. And what was important to her was not important to me at that moment. And she wanted the things that she was telling me to not only be a priority in her heart, to be, but to be a priority in mine. And you know what? I think the reason that a lot of folk have become unfaithful to church over these last several years is that somehow in the midst of all of the chaos of the last several years, a problem which should have driven us to the Lord allowed for other distractions to creep in and no longer is seeking God a priority among God's people, seeking an income, seeking fun and entertainment, seeking maybe even family time together, but neglecting the house of God and the worship of God has become a norm. And as churches, what we're doing instead is that we are dumbing down the music to the orchestra as opposed to encouraging and challenging people to rise up to the high expectations that God has for us, that he would not just be prominent in our lives, but that he would be preeminent. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 34. Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things doth the Gentiles seek. The point he's making is that the unconverted lost people in the world live their entire lives seeking after those things. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you need of all these things. You have need of all these things. What he's saying is that we have a heavenly father who knows our needs and we do not need to be consumed with those things. But what he wants us to do is he wants us to be consumed with something else. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow for the morrow shall take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And some of you can't even go to church and put your mind and focus on the message. And while God is talking to you from his word and from the pulpit, you're just nodding your head and saying, okay, oh yeah, all right, uh, I know, I know. But he's saying to you in this verse, you never say uh-huh to me, you listen to me. God wants the priorities in his heart to be the priorities of your heart. Prioritize. And then he tells us this, we need to repent. We need to repent. God's not so much concerned about all the sins that are taking place in our society around us, although I do believe that righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And there's a lot of reproach out there today. But how will you solve the epidemic of the crises which are taking place in our nation around us? It will not be through political effort. You've tried it, and it's left us wanting. It will not be uh, through, uh, through a campaigning and protesting. And I'm glad that we have the freedom of speech within our nation. I'm glad that we have uh, freedoms within our nation. And many of those are being threatened by a generation who's coming up and protesting against speech. Certainly those things are ridiculous. Certainly those things are very sad. 
But the sins that God has concerned himself with are the sins that exist in your heart and in my heart and his church. And over the years, what I believe has taken place in many churches across our society is that when we used to come and listen to sermons that prompted and promoted holiness in our lives, we now have given ourselves over to uh, sermons which are uh, more palatable to people, that make them feel good about themselves and encourage one another. And I'm all for encouragement. That's wonderful. But real preaching should be preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. But we don't teach doctrine. We don't reprove. We don't rebuke. All we do is exhort. That's it. So people don't even, pastors and preachers don't even call sin what it is anymore. And people run from churches that do things like that. But they flock to ones that pat them on the head and tell them that they're okay and try to boost their self-esteem. And I want to tell you, you have a lot of lost people who don't know the Lord is their Savior, who don't know that God is a holy God and that there's judgment coming on sin. The only message they ever hear every Sunday is God is love. He loves you just the way you are. And that's, there is some truth to that, but it's not the whole truth. And truth out of balance is very dangerous, no matter how gentle it may be presented. If you had a doctor and you went into him and you had cancer and he had reason to believe that, but he didn't want to make you feel bad. Because if, if I tell her she has cancer, she might cry. That might hurt her feelings, you know? She might get worried. So he just gives you a, a sucker and a Band-Aid and says, you'll be all right. You're a good person. You'd fire that doctor and find somebody else because he's not going to help any of your problems. But the vast majority of men standing in the pulpit today are men who are just giving people a pat on the head giving them a sucker, telling them you're a good person, you'll do all right. Meanwhile, they're dying of the real disease that we ought to be concerned about, and that is the epidemic, the pandemic of sin which exists in our land. So many times, the emphasis is placed on the story, for example, of Jesus with the woman who was taken in adultery and they brought her before him to stone her. And here's what he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. That's the part they really love. And unfortunately, that's where most of them stop. And one by one, they went away, of course. And he said, woman, where are those thine accusers? She said, no man, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn thee. That's a wonderful story, isn't it? That's just beautiful. Don't condemn sin. God loves you just the way you are. Blah, blah, blah. But there was one final phrase that gets neglected as the vast majority of people tell that story and remember it. And that is that he said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Don't tell me that Jesus is not concerned with repentance. Don't tell me that Jesus is not concerned with holiness and right living and things that are right and wrong. He didn't give her a pass on her adultery. He did give her forgiveness and thank God for that. But he also told her, you need to go and sin no more. And repentance is a change of heart that results in a change of action. It's not enough to just be sorry. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 10, the apostle Paul said this, godly sorrow works repentance not to be repented of. If you really are sorry after a godly sorrow, according to the Apostle Paul and the Word of God, then it'll change your actions and your heart and your life. And what I want you to know is this, that God tells us 
that you and I need to pray. We need to prioritize and we need to repent. I'm so grateful. The Bible tells us this, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm telling you this morning that God's not, when he's speaking to you, he's not so much concerned about all the sins that surround you, but the ones that are in you. It ought to be that uh, we get serious about these things that are sin in our lives and that we confess those before God and that we give them to him and that we get right with him, that we repent and we sin no more. I'm so thankful that when we do confess, that word confess is homo legeo. It means to say the same thing as. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what we wanna do. We wanna sin wholesale and then I, we want to sin retail and then confess wholesale. What that means is you say this. A lot of times what happens is that people, they say, um, uh, they, they go and do whatever they want to do. And then when the Holy Spirit convicts them of it, they get before God and they say, Lord, now if we've sinned, just forgive us all those sins out there that we've done and you just cleanse me and all that, you know, and that'll be good and goodbye, Lord, you know. But that's not what he says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. There is a biblical difference between the word sin and sins, and the word is a difference in specificity. You don't just sin generally, uh, sin specifically, and then confess generally. You sin specifically, and you need to confess specifically. And the Holy Spirit of God will prompt you when you've done wrong and you need to get right with him. It's only when we say the same thing as God. As long as you get on your knees before God and you say, well, now God, you know I didn't mean to do that and that's not as bad as some people think it is. And whatever. That's not it. That's not confession. Confession is when you agree with him. You say, God, this is, this is as bad as you say it is. This is as bad as you say this. Homo legeo, to say the same thing as if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't sin uh, generally. You sin specifically. So you need to confess specifically. That's the first step in repentance. And the next thing is this, that when we confess though, that we get up from our knees and we go and we sin no more. I heard a story about a man who was... Uh, uh, who was contracted to paint a church building years ago. And this particular contractor was kind of dishonest and he liked to try to stretch his dollar as much as he could so that he could make the most off of his profit margins. And he was known for pouring as much paint thinner as he could get away with into, uh, into the bucket of paint. And so as he was painting, he had spread that paint so far that all of a sudden a, a cloud came over while he was painting and the rain come down and washed all the paint off the sides of the building. All of a sudden, he realized he had been so dishonest, but he heard a voice from heaven that said, repaint, repent, and thin no more. <laughs> that was good advice for him and his specific sin of dishonesty. But you know what? I want you to know this. You would do well to repent and sin no more. We need to pray. We need to prioritize. We need to repent. And finally this, I want you to know that it's a wonderful thing that God has given a sovereign promise that if you and I will take God at his word concerning these things, that you can at least experience a personal revival. And that if his people, if we collectively would do this together, that we could experience a church revival. And if we collectively do this together, it may even 
influence some of the others in our community. I believe that if Bible Baptist Church and all the people who attend here uh, would, would get serious about their faithfulness to God and make God a priority and that they would pray and that they would seek his face, it would so transform this church. It may very well just from this one church transform the entire community. But most of you aren't serious. You're not praying, you're playing. Most of you aren't serious. God's not preeminent to you. He's hardly even a priority. But if you and I get real serious, God says this, then will I hear from heaven? Isn't that a wonderful thing? That you have the promise that if you will pray, that God will hear you. Isn't that wonderful? Psalm 66, verses 18 through 20. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily, God hath heard me. When we give up on our sins and we get on our face before God, he will hear us. He's not going to listen to you while you regard iniquity in your heart. What you'll find is that part of the reason that you have such a difficult time praying is that you're holding on to some stuff. And when you get down on your face before God, the Holy Spirit of God puts his finger on that. and You won't deal with that, so God won't deal with you. But if you'll give those things up and you'll place those into the hands of the Lord... What a wonderful blessing it would be. But verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to my voice of prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away from my prayer, nor his mercy from me. It's a wonderful thing when you get on your face before God and know that God has heard you and know that you have heard from God. Prayer is a wonderful conversation for the believer. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, I'm sure you know well, ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be open unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to everyone that knocketh, it shall be opened. There's a promise that if you and I will ask and keep on asking, that he will hear. If we will seek and keep on seeking, that he will be found. If we will knock and keep on knocking, then it can be opened. But the problem is not that God does not hear, that he does not answer, that he does not open. It is that you and I do not ask. We do not seek. We do not knock. Jeremiah 33, 3 says this, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. God's answer would be exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ever ask or think, according to the word of God, if you would but ask. James said this, You have not, because you ask not. And then he said, you have not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lusts. Sometimes the problem is we're not asking for the right things. What I'm trying to do this morning at Bible Baptist Church is to call you to a place of prayer. To call God to a place of priority in your life and call you to a place of repentance. He said, then will I hear from heaven. And he said, then will I forgive their sins. When we agree with God about our sins, when we repent of our sins, he will forgive us. Isn't that wonderful? You can have the slate wiped clean today. You can. Forgiveness, God offers in a moment. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's not a single sin represented in this building this morning that God cannot forgive as long as it's confessed and repented of. And then he said, I will heal their land. Oh, there's a great epidemic a great pandemic taking place around our world today. It's greater than COVID-19. It is the pandemic of sin among God's people. 
of lackadaisicalness among God's people, of shifting priorities and decreasing faithfulness among God's people. If we would repent of those pandemics, we might see some healing in some other areas as well. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. You know, revival is a church falling in love with Jesus all over again. When we talk about revival, the idea that we get a lot of times is that revival is some supernatural thing that takes the church beyond uh, to some extraordinary height. But really what revival is, is God's people getting back to where they should have been all along. It's not abnormal. The problem is that we're so subnormal that if the church became normal, we would think we were supernormal. Why are we content with something less than what God considers to be normal? Revival is the church getting back to normal. What would that look like? What kind of a difference would that make? I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen it in my lifetime. But Leonard Ravenhill said, as long as we're content to live without revival, we will. I think about great revivals of the past. The world still feels the influence of the Welsh revival, which flamed across the tiny country of Wales at the beginning of this country. But few remember just how this mighty spiritual movement began. A Christian Endeavor uh, meeting was in progress in a small town in Wales, and a timid young Welsh girl arose She was so nervous that she could hardly utter one short sentence, but she said this as her testimony. Oh, how I do love Jesus. And then she sat down. And the Lord used that earnest testimony to fulfill his own divine purpose within that congregation and then ultimately within a nation. Spiritual fire came down from heaven in a young people's meeting, even akin to the day of Pentecost. And quickly it spread across the church and then through that little town and then throughout the whole country of Wales, its influence soon felt around the world. Just one little girl with a heart for God and God got the attention of a nation. Taking refuge from a thunderstorm in 1806, four students gathered under the shelter of a haystack and one Samuel J. Mills proposed that they attempt to send the gospel to the heathen and said, we can do it if we will. Plans were made. And then the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions grew out of this incident four years later A monument stands today commemorating this simple beginning to what is known as the Haystack Prayer Meeting. I've been there. I've stood on that spot. Every great movement of God has been traced to a kneeling figure. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. He would sometimes send a pestilence. He would sometimes send drought, but he would send some kind of a catastrophe to get the the attention of his people, the nation of Israel. And God, I believe, is trying to get the attention of his people today at Bible Baptist Church and all around the world. But are we responding in prayer? I remember in the days of 9-11, there was a little more regard for God and our nation and this country in those days, and so when those towers were attacked, then people made a beeline for the churches. It was almost like revival had broken out in our nation. The interesting thing about this COVID-19 thing, though, was that the specific 
nature of this particular pandemic has drove people away from the church of God and they have not returned, have not returned. What was born in the storm died in the calm of nine, after 9-11. But when we had a storm this time, nothing was even born. And our nation continues to drift farther and farther away from God. And my question to you this morning is, what are you gonna do about it? Are you gonna take God at his promise? Are you gonna get serious about what God promised that he would do? I thank God that what God declared that he would do, he has staked his character upon, and he promised he will perform it. Let's all stand together, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, the pianist is coming. I wonder if these altars might ought to be full this morning. I wonder if there ought to be a people who would say, really, I'm not praying like I ought to be. Christian, pray. You're not praying. So many times an invitation is extended here at Bible Baptist Church, but all, everybody here is just okay and we're all just fine. But I just wonder if there's some people who really be honest about it and say God hasn't really been the priority that he ought to be in our church, in our home, in our family, maybe even in our church. Uh, prayer hasn't been the priority that it ought to be in our home, our family, or even our church. And uh, perhaps there's some sin that has crept into your life and that you need to deal with it. But I believe that there are some things that God has spoken to you about specifically this morning that you and I ought to give to him. As the piano begins to play, I want to invite you to step out of your place there. Do business with the Lord. Will you take him up on his word? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, then will I forgive their sins, and then will I heal their land. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not leave us hopeless in the midst of crises, in the midst of storms, in the midst of, of national tragedies and trials, that, Lord, you gave us a promise that your people have a refuge, that your people have a resource, and that you will hear, that you will answer, that you will forgive. God, we claim that promise this morning. I ask that you would work and have your will and way in every single heart. And Lord, I ask that you would help us during this season of revival, not to just talk of revival, not to just talk of prayer, but Lord, to practice it, to seek it, to seek you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Maybe you're here today. And I want to ask you this. Do you know that you know that you know that you're saved? Has there been a moment in your life where you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life? How many of you know that? Would you raise your hand? Yes, I know that. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to see hands all around the room. Maybe you're here today and you do not know that. You can't be revived unless you were first vived. Revive means to make come life again. You must be saved. You must be born again. Is there someone here today who says, I don't know that, but I'd like to know, Pastor. I'd like to know anyone like that at all. God, you see the hands, you see the hearts. We ask that you'd have your will and way in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen.